I'm Mark Steiner, and welcome to Shared Weight, to 1969, and the stories of Army nurse and author Linda Vandevanter, whose life inspired the TV series China Beach, and Air Force Sergeant George Evans, who was the first man during the Vietnam War to be tried and beat his court-martial. Please be advised that the following program has graphic depictions of the wounded and their medical treatment, and language that some may find objectionable. George Evans is now a poet. He and his wife, Daisy Zamora, also a poet and former Sandinista guerrilla, were on our journey to Vietnam that created this series, Shared Weight. George Evans was an Air Force medic at the military hospital in Cam Ranh Bay in Vietnam in 1969. He grew up a working-class kid in Pittsburgh and went to war because he was expected to do so. His story didn't inspire the film MASH, but could have been part of it. While there, he served honorably, but created his own nonviolent resistance to the war by not acknowledging the authorities above him. They attempted to court-martial him, and this is his story. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was the son of an Iceman and uh, a large family in a working-class family. And it was a post-war disintegration, urban sort of setting. Of course, my father was a nice man, and I was his helper. Until I realized from listening to his union friends that I should get paid, which began a conflict and spiraled downward in our relationship <laughs> that resulted in, at about the age 12, my running away from home. We didn't get along well. My father was a World War II veteran, quite damaged, I would say, from his experience in the islands with the Japanese. I grew up around a lot of war veterans, and war was a constant subject in that world. There was no one I knew who did not have some experience with war of the men around my father. But in my time, it was a very rough, heavy-duty sort of working-class situation. And I basically grew up from the age of 12 in street gangs. And in those days, I just moved from group to group. I was very curious. It was a great adventure. It was always assumed in our world that the military was in our future. It was actually the reality of the poverty draft. It was the only way out. Eventually, I dropped out of school. But I was determined from a very, very early age to educate myself. And I began as a visual artist, which was profoundly frowned upon. It was easier for me to read. I was also drawn to that. I started writing poems when I was quite young. I'd say somewhere around the age of 10, if not earlier, I'd been begun writing things, also frowned upon. Somewhere down the line, I knew that I'd have to go to the military. And one of my best friends somehow twigged to the fact that something very, very bad was going on in Vietnam. I was oblivious to it. And he convinced me that we should, before we get drafted, we should join the military. And I didn't care one way or the other. I knew I was going to have to go somewhere. He got rejected for a bad knee, supposedly. This young man whose bad knee disqualifies him from joining the Air Force would later qualify him to be drafted and killed in Vietnam. I went off to the Air Force, and I became a corpsman, a medical corpsman. And my first assignment was in Tripoli, Libya, where I lived for a year and a half. As a trade, I think I was given a very desirable job next to Fort Dix at McGuire Air Force Base. In the process of that, my friend died in Vietnam. I was bound and determined to not stay put 
in New Jersey. I wanted to go to the war. I wanted to see what was happening to my generation. So I uh, volunteered to go to Vietnam. In the course of that waiting to leave, three friends from childhood were killed in Vietnam. after I landed in Vietnam, that something was really wrong. I knew it before I left, but I was uncertain. Something didn't turn me towards understanding that this was a wrong thing to do. And I discovered, in fact, after I did arrive there, that what I'd been told from my point of view was wrong, that we were being lied to. And the Vietnamese, as you see, are tremendously endearing people. And it's impossible uh, once you encounter them, to know why anybody would want to hurt them. I would say that I became completely against the war from the moment I stepped foot in the country. Then I had to stay for a year. Then I had to figure out what will I do to psychologically survive this year, because this is a crime. This is wrong. I learned something about our country, my country, the day I got to Vietnam, and that was that we were involved in, in a true and, and, and a major crime. Uh, a war crime against uh, a country and a group of people that certainly didn't deserve our attention and that it was wrong. It could never be justified. Nothing could justify uh, that sort of loss among the Vietnamese and among the Americans. So I became slowly more radicalized, learning in my very limited way how to resist the military and to, to assist those that I could with what I knew how to do. I always paid attention to my job. But I slowly became a non-soldier. Let me say an anti-soldier. So it wasn't one event that turned you? No, I, I, it wasn't one event. It was exposure to the whole milieu at once. My, my, I felt that my job at that point became one of being a witness, of, of watching what was happening around me while being involved in it and understanding somehow on a micro level what the war meant determined almost immediately, I will go home, I will talk about this. I'll be able to tell people what's happening here. There was an event, in fact, uh, not long after I arrived, the, uh, the, the event of Hamburger Hill happened, the Hamburger Hill battle that you've heard about. Well, one night I came to work and there were uh, a half dozen seriously brain-damaged young Americans who'd come back from Hamburger Hill and uh, I can still see their faces. Their lives were over. They, their brain damage was irreparable. That, that made a, a big impression on me. What led to your, this court-martial? Uh, my court-martial actually was the eventual denouement of this process of paying attention and becoming less and less of, uh, what I would say, a spitshine military type. I always did my job. But there were forms of passive resistance that I could become involved in. Quit shaving, 
quit cutting your hair, quit shining your shoes, quit ironing your uniform, quit saluting officers, quit saying yes, sir, quit doing what you're told, quit supporting the war. And I, I was uh, posting signs and, and, and little messages on bulletin boards, and we could say, resist the war, don't do what they tell you, see what's really going on, this is a crime, things of that sort, little things, but they counted, they mattered. It was known that we were doing it after a while. They left us alone. We were young. We were, we were not predictable. People were afraid of the young. I was in Vietnam in 1969, which was the year in which the highest number of fragging events occurred. May have gone in uneducated, but we're reading books, we're finding out, we're getting newspapers from the United States, we're being contacted by outside organizations and offered to, to, uh, with offers to desert. We're making friends among the Vietnamese. We're seeing that the Vietnamese were not, not our enemies. We were our enemies. I can't say the exact details. There's a power structure, and the upper echelons of the power structure didn't touch the dirt. And that's why they grew to fear the troops, because the troops lived in the, on the ground. And they ran, in my case, they ran the hospital, and they ran the war. That's, at that point, I think you would say the military, the U.S. military was out of control. It had gone spinning off in a direction it didn't actually ever expect to happen. And there was a, a real and true, genuine subculture of uh, enlisted people, I was among them, who simply wouldn't cooperate, who simply wouldn't listen, who refused to take orders, who had essentially gone into the military initially in order to get an education. I would never have gotten out of the streets of Pittsburgh without somehow uh, being drawn into a situation where I could go to the university or even finish high school. I think it's the point where they came after you. A new CEO came to the hospital, and I think the first person he ran into was me. And this was a very bad experience for him. I hadn't shaved in a few days. My hair was about as long as you could legally get it. Nothing, really. I looked disheveled, uh, and I wouldn't salute him. And he really threw a fit in front of me, and I wouldn't salute him. He said, I'm so-and-so from such-and-such, and I said, great. Well, you'll stand to attention. No, 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 no. And I just said, I'll see you later, man. And I, you know, and I left. He made me into a project. He decided that he was going to use me as an example because I was a young staff sergeant. I was 20 years old. And I, he said to me, had a responsibility to set an example for the other troops. And I said, I am setting an example for the other troops. And he really didn't like that. One night, there had been a, uh, a jet crash out in the, on one of the runways. And uh, we were told the day before that there was going to be a formal uh, formation on the helicopter pad at 6 o'clock in the morning. Well, first of all, I wasn't going to do that. I, I mean, no, no one was going to get me to go stand out in the open in a group of soldiers after I was, I'd already been there in nine months, and it wasn't going to happen. So... This jet dinged in uh, in the middle of the night, and I just said, well, I'm going to go. And I went with another, another medic, and we went out there, and we, we, uh, it, it wasn't a really severe crash. Nobody was hurt, but, you know, we just checked it out, and 
by the time we came back, it was time for the formation, and we were covered with mud and you know just filthy looking. And I was in my usual, you know, half bearded, disheveled self. Disheveled self. <laughs> and I pull up, and here's this magnificent military formation on the helicopter pad. Like I was really, I couldn't believe it. And I say, well, I'm just going to disappear into the woodwork here, and I jump out. I get, I get out of the I get out of the uh, ambulance and and uh, I guess I didn't know that this guy was watching me when I pulled the ambulance in. He was aware that I was and he was standing in front of the troops. And this guy saw me and he shouted across for me to come. You know, Sergeant, I get over here in this formation, and I just waved him away. And he said, "I order you to fall in," and I just kept walking. By the time I got to this part of the perimeter, he was livid and red and spitting through his ears and screaming at me that I should come to the formation immediately or he was going to have me immediately arrested on the spot. And I said, well, this, this guy's not going to stop, you know. So I, I walked over to the formation and I said, what do you want? He said, fall in. I said, I'm going to bed. And he went nuts. He said, are you telling me that you're not going to do this? I said, I'm going to bed. And he, you know, he was really jumping up and down. And oh, now the whole hospital is standing there watching this theater go on. And I thought, okay, here's the turning point. This is, this is a turning point in my life because now I'm out. They've outed me. I can either do this, which means nothing, or I can walk away, which also means nothing. Except if I walk away, it's a more overt form of resistance for no reason. And so I walked away and I went to bed. And I don't know, a few minutes I was asleep. A huge MP came, or AP, we call them, air police, military. and said, get up, man. You got, you got to go. Uh, you got to go. And I said, oh, man, I got to sleep. I worked all night. He said, get the f- out of that bed you know like i said come on man you know get he said look he said he wants you in the office you got to go to the ceo's office so i was marched into his office and then i was told that i would really be on my way to jail very shortly he said you're a disgrace to the uniform and i said that i knew that he said what do you have to say for yourself and i said i have nothing to say and he said, uh, you're going to jail. And I said, first, I'm going to sleep, man. And we'll talk about it, because I'd been up all night working. And he, uh, he said, you, how dare you do this? And I said, look, just get off my back. I've got three months left in this war, three months left in the military, and I'm going home, and uh, that's it. I won't participate in this, and I want no trouble from you. I don't wish to disrespect you. I just wish to be left alone to do my job. And he said, you will go to jail for this. And I said, well, we'll see. And he wanted me to salute him, and I wouldn't. And he became more, more and more livid. And the first sergeant talked him out of having me taken to the brig. I said, look, I'm sorry, but you know, I'm, I'm put in a position here where I'm of two minds. And one mind won't participate in this, and I won't do it. He said, well, we have to do something. He said, you have to sign this punishment. And it was in Article 15. And I really, I knew about the ubiquitous Article 15. They were given out like confetti. They're what you would call uh, company punishment. 
I said, there's a military law, which I knew all of the military laws, that says, I don't have to sign that. I have an alternative. He said, what is that? I said, I demand a trial. He said, you want a trial? I said, what am, what am I being charged with here? He said, well, you know, you, you, you failed to show up at, uh, at an assembly. Uh, you, sh you know, you, you were rude to this guy. You're out of uniform. Look at you. You're a disgrace. <laughs> uh, but I, I said, well, I, I, I'm not signing it. I said, I want a trial. And he said, you know, you're, you're really going to wind up in jail. And I said, no, I'm not. I said, I don't believe I did anything wrong. I felt if I get a trial, then if I make them take me to a trial, then I have just, that's a real form of resistance. And so I forced the trial. And I wasn't afraid. I, I really wasn't. Listen, after, after nine months in, in Vietnam in a hospital, what could they do, as we used to say, send me to Vietnam? No problem. I wasn't really worried. I wasn't really told the truth, however. I was led to believe that I could be dishonorably discharged with the kind of trial that I demanded. I said, I want a lawyer. He said, you know, this is ridiculous. And I said, yes, it is. I get a lawyer, I go to see the lawyer, he dresses me down terribly. You know, you look at you, you got, you got, you got a beard, your hair is long, you're shaggy, you're going to jail. And I said, why are you talking to me this way? I said, you're my lawyer. I said, you're to defend me. He said, you're indefensible. I said, I'm indefensible? He said, you're indefensible. I said, well, f you, you're not my lawyer. He said, well, I, I, I said, listen, I don't want you as a lawyer. You don't have a right, you have to take the lawyer you get. I said, no. I, I, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not, you're not my lawyer. Well, it turned out that he was the roommate of the CEO who had me put in this position in the first place. Imagine that. I didn't find that out, of course, until I, I got rid of him. And then I found another lawyer who was an activist. And uh, he was a different ball of wax altogether. He said, listen, buddy, uh, you, you gotta shave. You know, you gotta shine your shoes. You gotta fight this. You gotta fight it with some strength. And he told me the truth of what would happen. Okay, so the formal charges were, uh, were brought. And I have to tell you that in the midst of this, it, it amused me tremendously because the charges were failure to obey a direct order, which was serious charge. Uh, being out of uniform, which was unbelievable. I never saw anybody in uniform in Vietnam. And uh, that was because I was wearing the wrong kind of hat. And one other charge, failure to appear at a lawful assembly. So those are the charges I had to defend myself against. And so I, I went to trial. I was allowed to have witnesses uh, to my character, so I went out and got a bunch of witnesses from the whole you know, echelon rank of the non-commissioned officers down. I had great witnesses. Uh, and they marched them in, uh, and they listened to them, and they listened to the captain, and he dressed me down, and he explained to them what a, what a terrible person I was, and what I had no excuse for my shoes, my hair, my clothing, my attitude. But I felt pretty self-righteous as a young American working-class person. And I thought that I, my defense was the war was no good, that I did my job. My character witnesses would, would attest to that. They could call any doctor in the hospital, and they would attest to that. There was no question of my competence. My military record was spotless, so we had the trial completely convinced that I would right. win. 
And uh, in fact, I did. Uh, after it was over, they said, well, we come back tomorrow, we'll tell you the results and before the panel. And, and then the judge announced that I was found guilty on one count. What and was that? Being out of uniform. And I almost burst into laughter because, I, like I said, I mean, uniform is like an inventive thing there. I was fined $75 for wearing the wrong hat and all the other charges were dropped. Honorable discharge, the whole nine yards, everything was fine. I had made my point. This guy was a total, total and that he had absolutely stepped over the line. He had to defend himself on these absurd uh, charges, which I consider harassment and irrelevant. I, I think that uh, what I've done is unimportant. You know, what I accomplished in the war is unimportant. This is just some, it's a small act of resistance. Who did it benefit? I'll tell you one thing. It benefited my sanity. When I got back to the United States, I didn't break down. When I got back to the United States, as small as the ex experience was, I felt sane. I felt at least I didn't take it. At least I, I tried something. Uh, and, and I did something. And, uh, and I felt saner for it. Linda Vandevanter was an army nurse who served in Vietnam in 1969 and 70 at the 71st Evacuation Hospital in Pleiku. Her life and her highly acclaimed memoir, Home Before Morning, inspired the TV series China Beach starring Bonnie Delaney. Linda Vandevanter began and led the Vietnam Veterans of America's Women's Writing Project and counseled many other veterans. What she wrote was cheered by many, but she was vilified by others who thought she gave the nurses who served in Vietnam a bad name because she wrote of the grit, the pain, drugs, the sex, and the madness of war. Linda Vandevanter died on November 15, 2002 from a cancer as a result of exposure to Agent Orange. Another soldier who left us as a result of the war in Vietnam whose name will never be on the wall. The largest number of people that I grew up with grew up with a sense that we had a mission. We had a purpose to our lives and that we had a responsibility to give something back to this world. And I was part of a generation of Americans who were chosen to change the world. We were sure of that. It was only a matter of waiting until we all grew up. We were the kid next door, both men and women. What I saw in Vietnam was not men. What I saw in Vietnam was boys. They were kids. They were generally 17, 18, and 19 years old. And for those of us who were women who were in Vietnam, we were barely out of nursing school. We were basically these naive, idealistic kids of the 50s and 60s. We thought of Kennedy in the same breath with ask, ask not, not what, what your country, country can, can do, do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. We thought of Kennedy in the same breath with, this generation will pay any price, bear any burden to save this world for democracy. I was a citizen of the greatest country in the world, and I was about to give part of myself to keep America great. <laughs> we were carried along by the noble sentiments of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And honest to God, I mean, it beat in my heart. It beat in all of our hearts. It really did. 
And so nursing was the way that I was going to make my contribution to society. Shake with the feeling. Shake with the feeling. On our way to break again, it's once again Elvis Presley, Don't Be Cruel, but we are playing it because it was written by the late, great Otis Blackwell, who passed away on this day in 2002. His record sold 185 million copies of songs he wrote. Great Otis Blackwell. The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeCU invests in you. More information, www.mecu.com. As we began our odyssey into Vietnam, as we began our odyssey into the new people that we were eventually to become, it was a, it was a process that I think we had hoped we'd be able to ease our way into, and, uh, and it didn't quite turn out that way. The day that I arrived in Vietnam, I arrived in, um, in Long Binh um, at the 90th Replacement Battalion. I learned that 2nd Lieutenant Sharon Lane, uh, who was a nurse on a ward at the 312th Evacuation Hospital in Coochie, had been killed that morning when a rocket had landed on her ward. I suddenly became very aware that women could, in fact, be in danger and that uh, this was no game anymore. And although the instructors back in BASIC had warned us what to expect, no amount of warning could ever have prepared me for the sheer numbers of mutilated young bodies that the helicopter kept bringing to the 71st. Dead bodies in glad bags were lined up outside the ER door to be moved to the morgue as there was time. The moans and screams of so many wounded were mixed up with the shouted orders of doctors and nurses. Um, So much for easing my way in. What I came to realize was we developed a living, breathing relationship with death as a human entity. Death became somebody who we had a relationship with. And death became somebody to fight sometimes and to welcome sometimes. And when we fought with death, we fought tooth and nail. And we used every tool at hand. And a lot of times the only tool we had was cursing it out because we were so enraged at it. As each day passed, I found myself developing a harder shell to protect my emotions. I started listening to the local discontents who railed against Nixon, Congress, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the whole U.S. government. Every time another person died on my table, I came one step closer to agreeing with them. And one day I saw some dead American soldiers lying outside the morgue. They had been ambushed by an NVA unit. The butchers had cut off our soldiers' penises and stuck them into the GI's mouths. I was outraged by the scene, but not as outraged as I became when I later saw a similar scene, only this time with dead Viet Cong. During those months, I lost my direction and found myself becoming a person I would never have been before Vietnam. Maybe you would have said I was merely getting tough. Like thousands of Americans, I began calling the Vietnamese both friendly and enemy gooks. I would have thought I was above that sort of racism. After all, hadn't I marched in the United States for civil rights like a good Catholic girl who believed all oppression was wrong? 
for each one of us, there was somebody who seemed somehow to personify what the war was, its futility, its desperation, and the worst of it, the, the parts of it that remained with us for the rest of our lives after returning, at least for every one of us who I know of who was a woman who served in Vietnam. Mine was a guy named Jean. It was a few days before my hump day, the exact middle of my tour when I would be over the hump. I was lost in a heavy sleep under my bed when the phone started ringing. Still half asleep, I listened to the words, more casualties, Van, we need you in surgery. There's a bad one in the neuro room, she said, I need you to pump blood in there. Leading to the operating table was the largest trail of blood I had ever seen. I tried to walk quickly through it, but slipped. When I regained my balance, my eyes were drawn to the gurney, where several people were transferring the wounded soldier from the green litter to the table. The lower portion of his jaw, teeth exposed, dangled from what was left of his face. It dragged across the canvas litter and then swung in the air as he was moved from the gurney to the table. His tongue hung hideously to the side with the rest of the bloody meat and exposed bone. When he was on the table, Mac Schaffner, the facial surgeon, dropped the lower jaw back into place. I held my breath to keep from getting sick. For a moment, I was glued to the spot. I thought I had gotten used to it all, but they kept getting worse. I wasn't sure I could handle this one. But the shout of the anesthesiologist, Jim Castellano, snapped me out of my trance. The son of a is drowning in blood, he screamed. Somebody help me get a airway into him. A gurgling came from the soldiers' throats. Jim's hands were quick. Don't you dare die, you There was an ugly metallic coughing sound as the soldier bucked for breath. Breathe, damn you! A barely audible sound escaped. That's it, soldier. Come on. In the middle of the confusion, the neurosurgeon came into the room. He looked at the soldier on the table and shook his head. His face was red. Who the woke me up for this gork? The brain doesn't look too damaged, Max said. You're wasting your time. We can fix him, Max insisted. Just give me a chance. Bullshit, the neuro guy answered. That sucker's going to die, and there's not a thing you can do. He stormed out of the room. It was all just another simple job where I could turn off my mind and try to forget that we were working on a person. But this one was different. The young soldier was not about to let me forget. During one of my circuits around the table, I accidentally kicked his clothes to the side. A snapshot fell from the torn pocket of his fatigue shirt. The picture was of a young couple, him and his girlfriend, I guessed, standing on the lawn in front of a two-story house, perhaps belonging to her parents. On the back of the picture was writing, the ink partly blurred from sweat, Jean and Katie, May 1968. I had to fight the tears as I looked from the picture to the helpless boy on the table, now a mass of blood vessels and skin, so macerated that nothing could hold them together. I had always held the notion that, given enough time, anything could be stopped from bleeding. I pumped 120 units of blood into that young man, yet as fast as I pumped it in, he pumped it out. After hours of work, Mac realized that it was futile. The boy had received so much bank blood that it would no longer clot. Now he was oozing from everywhere. Slowly, Mac wrapped the boy's head in layers of pressure dressings and sent him to post-op ICU to die. 
Jean and Katie, May 1968. While I cleaned up the room, I kept telling myself a miracle could happen. He could stop bleeding. Nothing was impossible. Please, God, help him. This wasn't merely another casualty, another piece of meat to throw on the table and try to sew back together again. He had been real, Jean. When I finished making the room ready for the next head injury, the next young boy, I walked to post-op to see Jean. I held his hand and asked if he was in pain. In answer, he squeezed my hand weakly. I asked him if he wanted some pain medication, and he squeezed my hand again. All the ICU patients had morphine ordered for pain, and I asked one of the nurses to give Jean his morphine intravenously, knowing that while it would relieve his pain, it would also make him die faster. I didn't care at that point. I just wanted him to slip away painlessly, quickly, easily. I ran my finger along the edge of the picture before putting it into an envelope with his other possessions. Then I walked outside, sat on the grassy hill next to post-op and put my head in my hands. I wouldn't cry. I told myself I had to be tough. But I knew a profound change had already come over me. With the death of Jean and with the deaths of so many others, I had lost an important part of myself. The Linda I had known before the war was gone forever. Dear Mom and Dad, I don't know where to start except to say I'm tired. It seems that's all I ever say anymore. The war disgusts me. I hate it. I'm beginning to feel like it's all a mistake. I cried myself to sleep. I'm starting to cry again. It's ridiculous. I seem to be crying all the time lately. I hate this place. This is now the seventh month of death, destruction, and misery. I'm tired of going to sleep listening to outgoing and incoming rockets, mortars, and artillery. I'm sick of facing every day a new bunch of children ripped to pieces. They're just kids, 18, 19 years old. It stinks. Whole lives ahead of them. Cut off. I'm sick to death of it. I've got to get out of here. I just heard another chopper come in. I'd better go. They need me in the OR. Eventually, we came to the point where the only way that we could protect ourselves from the pain that we were seeing every day was to wall ourselves off from all of our feelings. The Coffee Room Soldier is by Penny Kettlewell. I walked into the coffee for a cup of brew. The push was over, and I needed energy to regroup for the next assault on our forces and on my senses. I initially stepped casually over his shattered body, laid out unbagged on the coffee room floor out of the way, thinking, where would I find them next, in my bed? I turned with cup in hand and ascertained the damage. Chest wall blown away, exposing his internal organs, an anatomical drawing. Dispassionately, I assessed his wounds and sipped from my cup. I then saw his face, that of a child in terror, and only hours ago, alive as I, or maybe I was as dead as he. Because with another sip, a cigarette, 
and a detached analysis, I knew I could no longer even feel. I stepped out and grabbed a mop and pail so we would stop slipping in the blood on the RE floor, bagged the extra body pieces and the coffee room soldier, restocked supplies, then went outside to watch the sunrise alone and destitute of tears. As the jet took off, I was filled with the most exhilarating sensation of my life. It was a feeling of lightness like the weight of a million years had been suddenly lifted from my shoulders. And there wasn't anybody on that plane who didn't experience that rush. Yet we were still silent. Later, when the pilot told us we were officially out of Vietnam airspace, there was a collective sigh of relief. Did we make it? Someone in the front yelled, yes! We all shouted in unison, does it suck? Hell yes! Is it going to suck us back, he screamed. Hell no, we answered. Can you feel it? No. Can you hear it? No. What can't you hear? Vietnam, what does Vietnam do? Vietnam sucks. Then everybody cheered at the top of their lungs. There was laughter and hugging and tears in spite of our lack of familiarity with each other. Colonels and sergeants and privates all joined in. We were the lucky ones. We had made it out alive. But as soon as we realized we were safe, there was a vague uneasiness that came over us. We were all feeling guilty and sad. We had left friends in Vietnam. Each person on that plane suspected in some part of his or her heart that we all should have stayed behind to help them survive. Now that we were gone, who would look out for our friends? We wondered what we would face back in the real world. Our return from Vietnam was fairly similar to that of most men um, who returned from Vietnam. It was not a pleasant place to come back to. It was not a socially acceptable subject. Um, and I, I, the one epic that I remember as I was standing on, uh, unfortunately, the military made a number of very serious errors. Um, one of which was that they returned us all to the West Coast, which was the hotbed of anti-war sentiment. And although there was almost nobody who could have been any more anti-war than we were, we somehow personified that to the people who were back here. And I had the distinct pleasure of returning to the United States about uh, six weeks after the so-called invasion of Cambodia. And I say so-called because although the government lied about it, we had been taking casualties from Cambodia the entire time I had been in Vietnam. Um, and it was also six weeks after the uh, killing of the students at Kent State. It also unfortunately happened that I came back at the time of a transit strike in San Francisco. So there was basically no way for us to, uh, to get around um, once they brought us, the Army bussed us from Travis Air Force Base to Oakland Army Terminal and then said, see you later, it's been nice, thanks very much, and uh, you know, find your way to the airport. 
When I returned to my country in June of 1970, I began to learn a very bitter lesson. The values with which I had been raised had changed. In the eyes of most Americans, the military services had no more heroes, merely baby killers, misfits, and fools. I was certain that I was neither a baby killer nor a misfit. Perhaps I was a fool. I, uh, I ended up having to hitchhike, and a considerable number of cars went by screaming and cursing at me. And the one that I remember the most vividly, although there were others that were, um, that were, that were certainly memorable, was the one that, uh, that stopped by and, and made a number of epithets and, and then finally shut the window or shut the door. I mean, it looked like they were going to give me a ride. And finally shut the door screaming out at me, Welcome home, asshole. It took a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of pain to work my way, and for all of us who served in Vietnam, men and women alike, to work our way through the healing process of, of coming back. When we came back, Vietnam was not socially acceptable. You did not talk about it. And for anybody who was a family or loved one, they really sort of had this attitude that you're really better off putting that behind you. You really need to stop thinking about that now. And so as a consequence, I followed all those directions, and they turned out to be the incorrect directions. Um, but nevertheless, it all stayed inside of me, and it stayed in there working its way on me. And in 1979, although I had avoided making any contact with anything that would even remotely remind me of Vietnam for the preceding multiple years, I made the mistake of going to see Coming Home which was not a particularly uh, overtly warlike uh, one of the many, actually the many eventually, but the few Vietnam films that had come out at that point. But it was the first one that I had seen, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was in a theater that was no bigger than this in a small town in California. And when the film was over, um, everyone else had left the theater, and I was unable to move. And the lights were up, and they wanted to start the next movie, and they couldn't, you know, bring the next audience in until I left, and I simply could not get up and leave. Um, by the time I did get up, I barely managed to get myself out. And that, that was the beginning for me of Vietnam. That was the point at which um, Pandora's box got opened, and I kept trying to shut that lid again, and it wouldn't shut. Of war and peace, the truth just twists its curfew, gull, it glides Upon four-legged forest clouds, the cowboy angel rides This one is by Norma Griffiths, which was uh, an experience that she had back in the States. Um, again, trying to come to some kind of terms with... Uh, with what she felt about the military and her experience. It's called the General's Car. I first saw the dark-tinted windows of the car, then the red license plate, with only one star. Hardly worth rearranging what I was carrying to give him the finger. <laughs> Some of that healing, I think, in its most powerful way, came true for us when we were able to finally reach out to each other. When I first stuck my neck out uh, in the early 1980s. 
it was not a very safe thing to do, and a lot of people took, took pot shots at me. A lot of people did not like the things that I had written. Um, a lot of people did not, particularly the, the Army, did not like the things I had written. And for a long time, there were times, although I had spent a great deal of time and a great deal of effort and a great deal of therapy trying to come to terms with that experience, there were times I began to doubt it. And then eventually, some others began to speak. And eventually, some others began to share the kinds of feelings that they had. And I began to realize that I had not been alone. And they began to realize that they had not been alone. And that, I think, was the most important part of our healing. It was 10 years after Vietnam before they ever set up the first counseling centers for Vietnam veterans. And it was a good three or four years after that before any of them were prepared to deal with women at all. And even now, only the barest few number of them have begun to be able to reach out to women. One of the ones that, uh, one of the things I think that was the most important in that healing was the Vietnam Memorial, the wall. In 1982, the wall was dedicated and hundreds of thousands of Vietnam veterans came together for the first time, many of us women, and came together in a way in which we were able to share more powerfully than we ever had been able to in Vietnam, because in Vietnam we were trying to deny it was happening, and began to share in a way that started our healing process. Part of the frustration and the struggle of the first 10 years was that in, in my disease process, or if you call it a disease, in my, in my process of post-traumatic stress, I could not deal with Vietnam so I didn't have anything to do with it at all. I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to... Because that was what I'd been told when I first came back. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. Don't anything. So I couldn't get to that part. It, part of my healing and part of the healing of most of us, and a lot of what the poems and visions are about, is about that healing, about the discovery of the strengths that we had gained and the realization, particularly at the dedication of the memorial in 1982, and the tremendous outpouring of love from the guys, that we really had done wonderful things. The most important lesson that I ever learned out of my healing was, as long as I shut myself away from the pain, I will shut myself away from the, from the power and the strength and the positive things that I gained out of it as well. And, and for that reason, I had to go through the pain of recovery. It was not something I was thrilled at doing. But for that reason, otherwise I would have remained that, that, that empty soul that I had left. Wayne Carlin, who you've heard during this series, is a novelist and an essayist. He served in Vietnam as a Marine helicopter gunner. He was one of Linda Vandevanter's best friends. He wrote this close as a tribute to Linda Vandevanter. Many of us loved her. Many others hated her. But they didn't matter. She was a truth teller. And those who hated her were threatened by the truth she had to tell. Hemingway wrote of the strong that came back from the broken places of the earth. Linda was one of those. She had stuck her arms to the shoulders into the abattoir, and the broken and damaged kids she tried to heal broke and damaged something in her body and soul, something she tried to heal and did with love for her husband and daughter 
for her brother and sister veterans. But when she found her voice, her strong woman's voice, and forced us to listen, it was not to heal herself, but rather to give voice to the unheard and to change a world that would allow the carnage she had witnessed to wound it, so that it would stop wounding. In the end, it broke her heart. We dedicate this story and this episode to the life and work of Linda Vandevanter. Thank you for listening. Linda Vandevanter's voice segments, courtesy of the Connections Reading Series from the College of Southern Maryland. This has been a production from the Center for Emerging Media. Major funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Osprey Foundation. Executive producer, Mark Steiner. Producers, Steve Elliott and Mark Steiner. Editor and engineer, Andrew Epic. Studio recording and mixing facilities provided by Clean Cuts Music and Sound Design.